This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, it's always good to be back with another high-level energy industry conversation. This time, we're going to be digging into some of the last two years of supply chain disruptions. And we have two great thought leaders here to join us to give us some perspectives. But before we get into more of the meat of the episode, I want to make sure you're getting all of our previous conversations. So make sure you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com. For more information on our solutions and services and how we fit into the broader energy industry, uh, as well as more opportune thought leadership, like episodes of the podcast, but also videos, articles, and more. Uh, You can also subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations, plus notifications when we drop new ones. So, like I said, on today's episode, we're going to be talking supply chain disruptions and strategies for success as we come into the holiday season for 2021. Yeah, this is an inescapable crunch that the entire economy is still adapting to, and there's a lot of compounding issues. We see lingering COVID effects, still challenging existing B2B relationships and the flow of goods, but then you couple that with things like fluctuating demand and sporadic supply, also labor disruptions and more, and you get a supply chain that's difficult to predict and difficult to get a hold of. So we're going to be analyzing some of those high level trends that are affecting supply chains these days. And what we're wanting to do is uh, compare and contrast the energy versus the non-energy supply chain to better understand what those key differences are and also what the energy supply chain can maybe learn from where the larger flow of goods has built resiliency and also just highlight some ways the energy supply chain has resiliency of its own. So our guests for today are two of Opportune's thought leaders, both directors of process and technology at Opportune. I'm pleased to welcome Patrick Long and Steve Roberts. Patrick, Steve, great to have you all both on. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good. Great to be here. Yeah, real pleasure getting to chat with both of y'all. Thank you again for your time today on the show. So again, we're talking supply chain. First question is, I'd love to hear from y'all your perspective on how some of the last two years of supply chain disruptions compare to other high profile disruptions to the supply chain during your tenure in the industry. Have things been just that catastrophically worse? Are some of these familiar challenges the industry is already used to dealing with? Give us your high-level assessment there, and then we'll get deeper. Yeah, let me start a little bit, and then Steve, jump in. Um, I guess the couple words that I would think of would be unpredictable and constantly in the contingency and a bit of a crisis mode. Have we had disruptions to the supply chain in the past? Yes. Are they, have they persisted this long? No. And has the industry been able to rebound in other situations? Yes. And so probably the thing that comes to mind the most when you think about energy and we're situated here in Texas is like a hurricane scenario. When a hurricane comes on shore or is even offshore and they start to close and shut down platforms, there's always some kind of disruption for gas stations and gasoline and 
whether it affects the Houston market or then you read in the papers a day later in Atlanta or Greensboro or kind of up the eastern seaboard, like it, that, that has happened in the past. But the industry is able to rebound and is able to plan ahead. For this, yes, the industry saw some things coming, but it was just so drastic. Um, and there were a number of factors, which it's just difficult for the supply chain to, when it shuts down, to start back up again. Yeah, yeah I'd add on to that, the, you know, not only the tenure of the disruptions to the supply chain, but the cumulative effects that really we haven't seen before. So Patrick mentioned hurricanes, but then you add on to it, you've got a pandemic and then in the, certainly gasoline world, you had the uh, colonial pipeline cyber attack. Um, you've had driver shortages. Have you seen uh, fluctuations in the workforce from one workforce uh, to another? So it's the, the the tenure duration and the cumulative effect of those things. Uh, you know, certainly in my you know twenty plus years professional career, haven't seen anything like that. And you know, the industry has had to adapt and try to understand. You know, what are we going to do now? And how long are these things going to last and, and what do we need to do about it? What is, what do we take as short-term tactical steps and what do we need to maybe change strategically? Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that the effects have lingered this long really makes this unpredictable because it's, it's not only addressing the issues, but trying to, at the same time, uh, address the short-term compounding effects of supply chain disruption lingering, and then also trying to continuously build proactive responses to these lingering effects. And I'm sure that creates a lot of friction and has made it uh, a challenge to get ahead of uh, these disruptions. And that brings us to supply chain resiliency. I really want to highlight uh, some areas where you feel like the supply chains have been resilient before we get a little more specific on the core challenges. Uh, but where have you seen that resiliency? Are there any areas that the supply chain has been able to win out and why, right? What makes it uniquely capable of uh, insulating against these compounding and lingering effects? Yeah. Um, so resiliency, that's a great one. And as you were talking, I was thinking immediately of a, a contrast with the retail market where it hasn't been as resilient. And it's a bit of kind of made for TV photos of like the tankers off, you know, um, Long Beach or LA or, you know, just waiting for goods to enter into the United States. The resiliency in the energy industry, I think, is helped in part by the localization of where the product is sourced relatively local um, and pulling crude offshore, right? We're not dependent upon going through as many of those same touch points and different modes. Well, the same modes of transportation, but as, as many of the different touch points and delays perhaps is in the retail market. And so then the production is onshore and the movement then of product to call it the gasoline or any of the other refined uh, fuels into the local market still continues. There are delays, but it's not like we have shortages at the gas station. It's not as if suddenly there's no gas out there, kind of like, you know, there was no toilet paper, or there's no ketchup, or there's no, you know, pick your next product. Um, yes, the demand wreaked havoc. And yes, the fall off in demand and no transportation meant that refiners had to shut down because they're just not going to make and store product. There wasn't room and it's not cost effective to do that. Um, but I think it's more the localization. What do you think, Steve? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the you know the the localization. I guess what I'd add to that is the optionality. Certainly on the crude side, oh, from yeah. a refiner perspective, um, you know they they've got the option to you know bring barrels in that are onshore, um, bring barrels in from offshore, depending on where they're situated. You know, in most cases, you know the the bulk of the refining in the U.S. is is located near a major waterway, so you know they've got the ability to hey, I'm gonna I can bring those. Canadian barrels in, or I can bring those Bakken barrels in, or I can bring some offshore barrels in. So there was never, uh, the, the crude supply chain had that resiliency there. There was a little bit less on the refined product side, again, depend because they're more dependent on one mode of transportation to get from that uh, distribution terminal to the gas station. So while there, you know, while, while there's some, is some resiliency because you've got the ability to store more of that product, um, in a lot of cases, um, you got you got tanks that are available at some point in time, as you mentioned, Patrick. At some point in time, those tanks get full, and and you just can't. Or at some point in time, you've got a driver shortage due to brexiting the EU. Um, so you know, uh, you know, focus a lot on the US because because uh, that's where we sit. But certainly in in the UK, they had a number of different challenges that that piled up and and led to um, actual gas station outages. Uh, but but again. On the upstream side, or you know, upstream to the refinery, there's a lot of resiliency there because there's a lot of optionality. Where you lose optionality, you're going to have less resiliency. Like a car example, where uh, just to contrast, uh, um, for cars you need a specific chip, and the chip is only sourced from particular factories overseas, and so that's just the way those supply chains have evolved. They've gotten so specialized and so cost conscious that they don't have those options that Steve is talking about, and that's an excellent one. Mm. And so now we see the pain points as a result from as a consumer. Steve, you brought up the uh, worker shortage in the UK. Uh, I want to lean in there now and start to break down some of these core areas where the supply chain has suffered. One of those being personnel. In general, we've seen uh, a lack of freight drivers. Um, like you mentioned, there was the very high profile and specific example of truck drivers in the UK because of the Brexit deal are creating a lot of friction in the European supply chain uh, with also truckers demanding better pay, better hours, and sort of uh, the disruption of the entire uh, COVID pandemic, uh, putting a little more uh, impetus on labor to you know, flex their muscles there. And so that led to some more compounding effects. Uh, we've seen lack of port operators and inspectors, lack of crew for uh, vessels for uh, overseas shipments. What have you seen impact the energy supply chain specifically when it comes to a lack of qualified personnel really across any of those touch points on the supply chain? As I mentioned, it really comes down to where you've got optionality. Uh, it's affected, obviously, the downstream and the retail space the most. Um, we've seen disruptions on the, uh, you know, on the, the crude delivery to refineries where um, obviously earlier this year you had the ever given block up the, the Suez Canal. And so you had disruptions of um, disruptions of crude flows to refineries that were stuck in that general area. Um, and then you run into the, you know, the, uh, the, port uh, backups and then uh, captains and crews for vessels. So that does start to decrease the optionality. But but again, where we've seen that the most is in the downstream retail side of things. And again, it gets back to, to optionality and, and where you have the ability to deliver things to the end customer and, um, and, and where you, you know, in a lot of cases, you're going to rely on trucks. And, you know, without those truck drivers, you're going to have constraints there. 
Now, what about on the logistics side of the supply chain? I'm curious if there have been any specific disruptions to,、uh, I guess, just yeah, the operations of the supply chain,、uh, limited space for logistics.、Uh, how have you seen that compound some of these issues? It all the supply chain works when all pieces are moving. When one piece starts to shut in, it starts causing problems and backups because inevitably you run out of space. So logistically, how does it get gummed up? Well, an easy way it gets gummed up is is thinking about some of these modes of transportation where you have a limited capacity. So take、uh, vessels.、Um, if there aren't enough crews for the large vessels, then the vessels can't go and source the crude. Internationally and bring it in, right, and take it around, and so that's one of the pinch points. And so then you have to look locally until you don't have local options, or it just becomes very expensive. Another pinch point, which has come up a little bit closer to home,、uh, are rail cars. And so rail cars are used to transport fuels, transport crude, transport、um, products, propane, other gases around. And so the rail. Logistic system is constrained by the amount of cars that they have, and like everybody else, making cuts, right,、um, and trying to be cost conscious. And so it comes down to a prioritization,、um, where grains may get a higher prioritization, or if you have, for example, the fires in California or bad storms, the rail is not going to run, and so therefore you are preventing. Getting crude into a particular refiner, or on the other side, moving products out of that refinery to a district or a terminal or kind of some other location where it can kind of keep keep moving on. So, logistically speaking, you do get gummed up where you don't have those huge inventories, and it's something where traditionally. Um, the supply chains and these companies have been trying to maintain lower inventories. It, it costs a lot, right, to maintain inventory. That's cash that's not on the balance sheet, right? And so companies have tried to be as lean as possible and manage working capital. It's a huge theme where when we go into clients, that's what they're trying to do.、Um, but now I think people are going to have to rethink that strategy, try to come to terms with a kind of a different way of approaching、um, the supply chain for the resiliency. Yeah, I think what's interesting is on, on that, that point on rail. Patrick、uh, had that just、uh, highlighted to me.、Um, actually, outside of、uh, the workspace, my, my parents、uh, actually just recently took a train from Houston to the San Diego area because my, my mom doesn't like to fly. And I, I get a text from my mom that said, "Hey, we're we're on a rail siding right now. Watch a you know a bunch of crude oil tank cars go by, and you know it's pretty clear that on the rails the passenger." Rails are the passenger cars are the lowest priority, and other commodities, be it grain, be it crude, be it other, you know, get the right of way on those railways. So, so you you really hammered it there. I mean,、uh, you know, the the railways are going to go by, you know, what kind of contracts they have, and ultimately it comes down to the almighty dollar, right? Who's paying the most to ship product where, and what do their contracts say they're going to get paid to deliver? So. You know,、uh, you know, a, a unit train of crude rail cars may get put on a siding because you know the ag industry is moving corn to an ethanol plant or moving soybeans to an export、uh, terminal on the、uh, on the west coast to ship it off to China. So you know, it, it is prioritization at the at the point that you have logistics that are constrained.、Mm. What we've also seen during these supply chain disruptions is each. 
I guess each sector of the supply chain, each step in the chain has been disrupted differently. And because of that, the links between them have also been disrupted. And so I'm curious how you see these multimodal concerns manifesting and lingering, uh, at least over the last two years, because transferring between these different modes of transportation, and whether you're going from land to air, air to sea, sea to land, whatever, uh, it causes delays, it causes bottlenecks due to space, due to lack of coordination, due to uh, miscommunication yeah. around logistics. Yep. What are your perspectives there on uh, how these effects are manifesting for the energy industry? So overseas comes to mind. We, we're fortunate here in the United States, again, where there's not a lot of international borders that have to be crossed. For the transport of fuel on either our northern border with Canada or the southern border with Mexico, perhaps, you know, there's some um, logistical issues. But what most notably comes to mind are seeing the stories about the border crossings in Europe, where there is a lot of cross flow. And then, again, heightening with, with Brexit. So where this shows up and manifest, when, when countries don't have normal protocols or there's it's uncertain as to if a border is open or closed then it absolutely constrains the trucks and the transportation moving products and so trucks have to sit at border crossings and you have to wait and you've got to get the special shot and I remember seeing an article where a driver had to get three or four different shots you know, in a very short amount of time because each country demanded a and was approved for a different vaccination. That was the only way for the poor driver to be able to kind of move around. And so where you have those differences and where the border crossings aren't as fluid, then you get those issues. So that's where it shows up in energy the most. Non-energy comes to mind as far as kind of where you see this more. And it's because with energy, we're not dealing with air traffic right? And movement of fuels in and out of airports. So you cut out one mode of transportation. And then you also aren't seeing the boxes stacking up in warehouses. There probably is product that's stacking up, but it's more that infrastructure is kind of hidden from sight. I think the, because of the holidays coming on, like you're talking about in the e-commerce and the huge push for everyone ordering everything online at all the, you know, different websites, that is what is taking center stage and getting the press versus, you know, where this is backing up. Yeah, I, I would extend, you know, your example there, Patrick, to um, an individual company or an individual enterprise, you know, where companies are trying to add more flexibility to their supply chain. They're trying to increase or, or introduce modes of transportation that maybe they haven't typically used to kind of get around a potential bottleneck. And, you know, like everything in, in at least our, our sector of the energy industry, uh, discounting power at least, you know, the you're, you're moving a, a physical piece of something around a, a wet barrel, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, gas and, and you know, logistical uh, concerns and, and challenges with that are, are very real. And while many enterprises are good at, you know, moving those barrels around or, or moving the gas around, you know, every time you try and add a new mode of transportation to your existing uh, arsenal, then you're going to have a learning curve for that. So I certainly have uh, heard from clients in the industry that are trying to make their operations more flexible by by adding in modes of transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, all of that uh, all that means that you've got to make sure you understand how that works. And there's a learning curve for all those things. Yeah. 
Now let's talk about the relationship between supply and demand. Uh, because of these compounding issues, because of COVID's shutdowns and then reopenings, there's been a lot of unusual or at least just atypical demand coupled with uh, little to no buffers of inventory. Just-in-time inventory it just hasn't really been able to be as resilient in a lot of industries. So give us your perspective there. Where do you see this atypical demand and low inventory intersecting to create some challenges to the supply chain? How do you see that manifesting for the energy supply chain specifically? The atypical demand, I think what was most notable is when this first started, there was a graph that we saw from the EIA where the demand for gasoline just fell off. I mean, it's as if somebody just took the pencil and just ran it down the page and that was the curve. And so if you're a refiner, you're not focused on what is currently going on, but you're looking at patterns and behaviors that are coming up in the future. And if the future is bleak and it's not certain because of the shutdown and lockdown as to what's going on, you're not making product because you can't just casually start up these refiners. I mean, that's one part of the resiliency that is an issue. This isn't where you could start up part of a factory and get it going. It, it's not how each of these different operations run. So the atypical demand I saw most was in the beginning. And then as states were in a lockdown, out of a lockdown, some driving, some not driving, as it started to get more into a routine, then I think more and more of the production came back online and started to get into a gradual flow. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Patrick. But, uh, you know, I think after that drop off, each organization has had to look at, okay, what do we think that forward demand is going to be that is completely outside of the, the realm of what we're used to dealing with? And, okay, now that we uh, we've seen that drop off and we know there are going to be new and cumulative disruptions that we haven't had to deal with before. How do we take that not only tactical view, but how we take that strategic view longer term and say, okay, you know, maybe a, you know, maybe a lean supply chain has worked with us in the past, but in the, you know, in the near term and maybe in the, you know, uh, you know, two to maybe five year time frame, we need to look at how do we make our supply chain more robust? You know, one answer to that can be, you just increase safety stock, but that's that's kind of the uh, the easy way out, um, and and potentially a costly way out. Um, you've got to look at okay across the supply chain, what is my overall objective um, at each point along the way? What is my overall objective on delivery to the end customer, and what do I need to um, change and then measure and manage along the way to achieve that core objective? Um, so you know. Inventory is one lever you can pull, but you've got you know, strategic sourcing options. You've got new logistical partners. Um, you, know, you, you want to look across the supply chain and see what, what are all the levers we can pull to make sure that we're meeting that end objective and make sure that everybody is, is keyed in on what is that clear objective. Yeah, companies could be getting into do different areas where if they're so attuned to them and only them carrying the fuel, you could get into exchange agreements, but that's a different skill set. And that's getting into a different part of the industry that perhaps they may not be comfortable with, right? And so with the 
added adding more resilience to the supply chain, adding these options does come a need to start evaluating what is the increased risk for the organization. Um, when things are going right, that's wonderful, but prices are also volatile and the prices haven't always kept up with um, expectations and take unexpected dips and falls and rises. And so you just have to be aware that the new contracts, the new sourcing, whatever you're getting into and locking in, that you appreciate that and are prepared for that, most importantly, and not caught flat-footed. Before we start to do a little compare and contrast here before the energy supply chain and uh, non-energy examples, just more generally, I want to get your thoughts on how budget cuts have impacted the supply chain. So given COVID, given the economic downturn, and you know, we are seeing some gains, but there's still a lot of uncertainty around the stability of the market. Companies have cut back and are looking for efficiency, which has also proved to be positive, right? Investments in technology and reassessing some of their processes and finding ways to operate more lean. But it's also meant in some cases, less money for systems, less money for personnel to run the supply chain, potentially less inventory as well. Uh, So how do you see budget cuts impacting and uh, continuing these lingering effects? Yeah, I think there's a a couple of things, and I'll I'll maybe start with the the personnel side of things. Um, You know, across the energy industry, there has definitely been a, uh, you know, a first round of, okay, we're going to cut kind of discretionary product projects. And then, you know, a lot of companies went through a, you know, evaluation of, okay, where are we potentially on the personnel side that, that we think we can, um, you know, can be a little bit leaner and on the supply chain side, you know, sometimes it's, it's not as highly valued. And sometimes the experience in those areas is, is maybe not as highly valued. And I think what I've seen at some clients is the loss of some experience in those areas. So, while they may have not changed the processes or the systems they use to support those areas, you know, a, a lot of the uh, applications and a lot of the tools in supply chain areas are, you know, very much decision support oriented that still rely on some degree of expertise from the personnel running it. You know, again, I've spent a lot of my time in the downstream primary and secondary distribution space. Um, you know, a lot of those areas where you get into a crunch situation, rely on the expertise and the relationship to build up over time between um, operations, supply and logistics partners. Um, and so what, I, what I've seen a little bit of is, is there's been some loss of experience in those areas. And I, I think that's, that has challenged certain organizations in their ability to be as effective as they want to be. Um, when in some cases, you know, they, they had some unintended consequences from looking across an organization and potentially leaning out an organization in areas where, um, where maybe at a high level, it, it seemed to make sense, but, uh, you know, boots on the ground, it, it uh, makes it more challenging. Yeah. I think the relationships, if I can add to that is huge. I mean, you mentioned making cutbacks, you know, sometimes just inevitable, the easy thing to do is to cut the highest salaries, right? And go with the young, go with the cheaper salaries. And so that can be a replacement of the experience in a relationship. And it's difficult to quantify that, you know, if you're having to make budget cuts, but when it comes down to supply chains, you have contracts, but it is all about the management. And you said it's key, the decision-making part of it, right? And so if Steve and I have 
contracts with our respective companies and moving products through the supply chain, regardless of what is on paper, it is our relationship with each other that's going to carry the day and whether we choose to enforce some clauses or not, or to help each other out in times of need. And so it's also knowing where you do have flexibility in those contracts. Legal doesn't stay involved all throughout. When the deals are done and the contracts are negotiated, it gets turned over to the back office or a contract management group. But again, it's that expertise of knowing where you do have options and where you can call up, right, um, more favorable terms in different circumstances that's needed. And so I think that's where a lot of it, you, you miss, companies miss out on these opportunities just because that is now gone, that institutional knowledge. All right, Patrick, Steve, let's go ahead and jump over to that compare and contrast I was talking about. Um, you've kind of already been doing this within each of your sub answers, but let's just give a more general analysis here of how we've seen the energy supply chain versus the non-energy supply chain take on some of these varying challenges from budget cuts to atypical demand, multimodal concerns, personnel, right? And what differs in strategy, right? Is there anything that one can learn from the other? Uh, is it just wholesale should be a different approach on its face? Uh, so go ahead and break that down for us. Uh, where do you see some similarities? Where do you see necessary distinctions? Yeah, the, the one story that I was reading about on the retail side that I thought was interesting was the shortage of ketchup and specifically mm, yes. ketchup packets. And that's not something you think about. You think about Oh, I'm just going to get that and I may or may not use it. But then what they what the article did is it broke down the why. And it's because a lot of people have been ordering out and a lot of people go for comfort food in times of stress. And so comfort food is like fries and burgers and anything that requires ketchup on the side. So a lot more ketchup. And so then you take the other side of the factory and the production. They aren't hearing that signal. Um, it's not coming back to them of suddenly there's such an increased demand and there's going to be a shortage. They have production goals. They have production runs. They have certain capacity. They're having personal shortages and issues just like everybody else to kind of make their numbers. But they're not able to flex as quickly, right, for it. Um, and so then you get into a situation where suddenly there's out of the blue a shortage catch up and you're like, how is that even possible? Um, or the toilet paper. The toilet paper is a bit more, um, when that first started, it's not that the world was running out of toilet paper, but there are rumors that start to get spread in the social media and suddenly everybody makes a run on toilet paper. How the energy industry can learn and some compare contrast, again, I'd kind of go back to a hurricane scenario. When a hurricane comes, depending on where you are, they'll start posting signs and you hear the warnings, top off your tanks. And so it's a set pattern and a behavior. And so prior to a hurricane coming ashore, companies will plan for the surge in demand. That's just what you do if you have good proper tools that allow you to optimize and get a full grasp of your supply chain. So I think one lesson to be shared actually from energy back to retail is tapping in and getting a perspective and planning for some of those contingencies and having those on hand. I think the energy industry has had to seasonally constantly think about that, whether it's uh, snow disruptions in parts of the country, heavy rains or hurricanes, right? There, there's always something there that the energy is having to contend with. 
Now, one thing that I think is, uh, you know, is, is similar and actually maybe retail has or other in- outside energy has learned a little bit from energy is you've seen a, or I've seen a couple of news uh, articles about, uh, I certainly remember Costco specifically going out and time chartering container vessels. Now, I, I don't think that uh, even Costco is sitting there thinking, oh, well, time charting a container vessel is going to unblock the ports for me. But when you look at the total cost, total cost back to the enterprise, um, they may, may be paying um, some ridiculous demurrage costs uh, or delay costs on things that they uh, maybe uh, didn't time charter out or spot charter out in the, in the past. And, and the energy industry has done analysis like that you know, consistently for, for, for decades, right? Um, I think on the non-energy side, they have uh, typically not been as constrained in those areas so they haven't needed the skills and the analysis to, to kind of do that, uh, that cost-benefit analysis. They, they've sat through a, uh, maybe a year or more of that now and said, okay, well, you know, uh, we're in the past that uh, time chartering these vessels really wouldn't make any sense for us at all. They're looking and say, okay, well, the times have changed, um, at least in the, the near term. And they've, I think if I remember correctly, it was, it was for up to three years on a, on a couple of the vessels. So um, that's where I think, you know, there's a little bit of learning, uh, learning the other way as well. Now let's turn this into some strategies then for companies in the energy space. We've seen companies try their hand at, again, more proactive and also reactive contingency planning. Uh, there's been cutbacks on fulfilling demand to customers strategically, uh, rethinking KPIs, right? Should this still be our business model? Should this still be our model for success? So what are your views on some of the strategies that you think energy companies should take on to, again, not only respond to the way that these issues are compounding and lingering in the short term, but then also to simultaneously try to build resiliency to potential long-term disruptions like this happening again in the future? Yeah, I think you hit it there in the intro there, Daniel. Uh, I think it's really rethinking the KPIs they're going to use to manage the business and make sure that you're reevaluating, you know, what uh, what business value is brought at each one of these steps along the way. Um, you know, maybe uh, you know, maybe in the past uh, measuring something as simple as you know days of stock at the retail gas site is, was enough to manage your business. Well, uh, things have changed enough, and maybe you need to look a little more um, in depth at what are some of the points along the way. Um, and really look at something, even at asking the questions, okay, well, um, and I use a retail gas station example again, you know, what's the true value or, or uh, lost value of running a gas station out of gas? Um, you know, what is that true value back to the company? And then take that back one step. What's the true value of potentially um, running a, uh, a terminal uh, that supplies that gas station out of gas. What, what are the, the lead times to refill those two things respectively? Um, what business value do I put on that? How do I want to measure that? And then how do I want to plan and manage around those things? Um, at the end of the day, nobody wants to run a gas station or a terminal dry, but um, you need to have realistic views of what the cost is not only to keep those quote unquote full, uh, what the cost is to the organization if those were not because in some instances maybe the highest value to the organization may be to you know 
maybe you've got a, a good price and you've got a good margin. And, and you know what? In that case, having a gas station out for maybe six hours, maybe you've made enough margin to make up for that value that you're going to be out. So you might want to make that decision. Um, but you need to evaluate and make sure you can measure and manage based on those things. And I think enough has changed that the companies need to take a uh, take a hard look at those and understand where they are against those and, and are they measuring and managing against the right ones. I'd echo that. Um, that's important for those KPIs and along those lines, I think there's an increased strategy towards digitization and creating a digital twin is something that you hear of your supply chain so that when it comes time to need measures and call them up quickly, you're able to tap in and do that. And you don't have to be as reliant on the people and the personnel who may be experienced and times are great and you get good information, but they could also be brand new. And so you're not getting that quality of information that you need. And so there's there's a reevaluation of looking at which pieces are automated, what data is feeding through. Is it the right data? Is it the right measures? I mean, as Steve said, if you don't if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And so it's really taking a look at that now before we get into the next crisis. It's not like we're never going to have another one. It's a question of when and are you prepared? Which is obviously you know easier said than done. Uh, but it's curious that there have been companies that have been able to prepare well and insulate themselves against some of these challenges. Do you have any examples of companies that you think you know, you don't have to name them by name necessarily, but if you could just give some examples of what those strategies have looked like that have won out, right? What actually, uh, in practice, does it mean to be prepared and to be nimble and be able to react to these disruptions? I think part of it starts with the culture. Are Does your company have a culture where you're actively talking about scenarios and situations that are coming up? Maybe not pervasive across the entire organization, but is there enough of a group of people where it's a conversation that happens on a monthly, on a quarterly basis? And then do you have plans in place that you can kick in? Is that hurricane plan ready? Or is it just exist on paper to satisfy, you know, checking the box for someone? Um, good companies have options. Good companies understand their contracts to the fullest extent. And whether or not they have the personnel and the expertise to do it, the systems are able to understand those contracts, right? So that you can set and forget some of this stuff and the system will notify you. Are you listening? Are you listening to the signals that are out there? Good companies will tap into the, the tracking and the tracing of the logistical network and ahead of time start to get the signals that they're bottlenecks that are happening or their capacity constraints just by the flow of their movements and, and analyzing those over a period of time. And so then are you getting out in front of that? There are always options. It's just a matter of the horizon and are you willing to pay based off of the short term or do you have, and maybe you know you can establish some alternative for the longer term. Yeah, I think one, one indicator of that, again, focusing on the downstream is, you know, how well does your organization deal with uh, disruptions, quote unquote, that you know are going to happen every year. You've got, in the US, you've got two RVP changeovers a year. Are you scrambling to manage the RVP changeover every time? If you've got an organization that's scrambling to manage something that is planned every year, then, uh, you know, then 
I think it's worthwhile to kind of take a look at the organization, the tools that enable that organization, the processes around it and say, okay, you know, we're, um, you know, we're reacting every time to something that is coming down the pipe that we know about. Um, if you're, if you're reacting to that, then something like this was re really challenging. Um, so the organizations that, that, uh, that are, um, well positioned, that are flexible, um, that aren't, um, in a reactive mode for things like that, we're better able to, um, to plan and manage around, you know, these, these unexpected downturns. Um, you know, Patrick mentioned a number of different things there. It's, it's about flexibility. It's about knowledge in the organization. Um, it's about having the tools to enable the people to, to make the decisions, um, you know, from the front office to the mid office, to the back office in a trading organization, you know, you, know, you need to be able to, to be flexible. I want to intersect technology now more specifically. I'm curious where you see investments into software, hardware, at the intersection of both, uh, into addressing these issues, um, whether that is to provide more visibility into the supply chain, uh, potentially to uh, help realize KPIs with more accuracy, uh, or just optimize different processes among the supply chain. Where do you see technology really proving itself as both a proactive and reactive investment and why? Uh, so starting with some infrastructure, I would, if I were a company, I would seriously look to taking things to the cloud. It seems like it's not an if, it's a just when and, and how quickly can you do that and have an integrated strategy. Um, having your infrastructure on premises, perhaps good for some reasons, but as far as the maintenance, and then if a storm rolls through or there's some other disaster, then you have to contend with that versus dispersing that risk by using and tapping into any of the number of cloud computing um, resources that are available now that have the uptime of just an unbelievable amount, right? Because all the major companies are using them. Other, so other investments. I think it is very important to invest in some kind of optimization tool that's right and fit for the organization. And so what that means is being able to model your supply chain technically so that you can optimize and you have the ability to run these scenarios and simulations ahead of time and understand where your pinch points are, where you can address where perhaps there's infeasible storage or you have demand that you just can't supply because of some kind of outage. You may or may not realize that until you actually start modeling and it will expose some of those issues, you know, that are already out there. Yeah, I think the uh, on the optimization side, you, you hit it there, uh, Patrick. It's it's fit for purpose for your organization. Um, it, it is definitely not a one size fits all or a one solution fits all. You know, in some cases, it might be um, a you know simple set of uh, KPIs and dashboard put together for the organization to manage, depending on the complexity and the experience of the organization. In, in some cases, and and maybe in a more complex. Um, maybe more um, high demand, uh, you know, limited supply nature. Maybe you do need a, a full-on digital twin optimization tool, uh, optimization um, uh, application to help you manage that on a, you know, on a real-time basis as you go through. So I, I do think, um, you know, I'm a big believer in 
fit for purpose. There, there's not one solution that you can just right. rubber stamp across every organization. No. And I think with that, we'll go ahead and start to wrap up then. Uh, let's take all of our conversation and distill it down into some crystal balling, look ahead a little bit and offer some advice for next steps, again, specifically for energy companies. So what would you say Outlook in general looks like? Uh, again, we've had almost two years now of these lingering effects. Uh, some of them are actually uh, more acute than they were even towards the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but does Outlook seem positive in any ways? Should there be some skepticism uh, around uh, a total rebound for the supply chain? And what would your advice be for how uh, energy companies, excuse me, can take next steps to uh, build that resiliency? Yeah, I think the outlook is positive. Um, and I think at the end of the day, as we've talked about a number of times, you know, across the organization, you know, supply chain, um, along with uh, the supply organizations, whether it's the refineries or whether it's a trading organization, you know, really need to sit down and talk and make sure um, from the sourcing of product to the delivery of product and the, you know, the servicing of the customers, whether it's a retail customer or a wholesale or bulk customer, really understand, okay, you know, what are you know, the, the key factors from a business value uh, back to the enterprise perspective that we want to focus on? And then let's talk about, you know, what had been done in the past, um, what's changed and strategically where those things might change going forward. So it's, it's got to start with a conversation between the, you know, the potentially in a lot of cases, siloed areas of the business, um, understand you know, what are, what are we trying to do? Have the, have the business levers changed? Um, does that mean that there's different, um, you know, different actions supply chain needs to take? It's got to start there. And then, then you got to look at, is our organization ready to be able to deliver on that? Or where do we need to potentially build either, you know, uh, people capabilities, um, process capabilities, or a technology capability to enable that? Yeah, I would echo the outlook is, I'd say the outlook is there's optimism, right, in the, in the future. And it's because energy companies have always had to contend with price pressures and global politics in terms of managing their business kind of one way or another, right? They will rebound. And so it's about doing more with less. And here it's less personnel and having to work with less personnel just for cost reasons. But you, that doesn't mean you can cut out that knowledge and that visibility and that insight into the supply chain. Your silo point is spot on. You have got to have people who look across the supply chain and are always focused on this across the supply chain. You can have individuals who are very deep in their respective areas, don't get me wrong, but you do need to make sure and companies need to make sure that they are thinking that horizontally, right, from start to finish. And so I think that's where I'm seeing the upsurge in tools and companies investing in those tools for exactly that purpose. And then finally, what role do you see opportune playing in helping build some of this resiliency? We have a very deep practice. We have experience across operations and logistics and working with companies either in small minutia aspects of the supply chain or the entirety of it. And so as Steve had mentioned, there is no one solution. 
gone are the days of putting in um, an ERP solution, having that be the one answer for everything. And so it's a lot of just what is right and fits and is practical for purposes of the organization, both technically, cost-wise, as well as culturally. And so we have deep experience in working with companies up front on that strategy and then looking at the solutions that are practical for implementation afterwards. Yeah. And I think what I'd add to that is, you know, not only do we have the experience to help drive and construct and shape those solutions, you know, we really pride ourselves at opportunity to be able to deliver on those as well. So we've got numerous examples over the years of not only helping customers and clients determine what should the right answer be for us, what's fit for purpose for us, but then following through, executing, delivering on those. All right, y'all. With that, we'll wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much to the two of you for your perspectives today as we analyze disruptions to the supply chain, how they've manifested differently for uh, the energy industry and non-energy supply chains, and offering some strategies for how companies can build resiliency and meet uh, both the short-term and long-term effects of some of these compounding disruptions. So again, we've been chatting with Patrick Long and Steve Roberts, both are directors of process and technology at Opportune. Uh, Patrick and Steve, if folks want to find out more about Opportune's role in building resiliency for the supply chain, they want to get in touch or they want to source more of your thought leadership, how can they do so? Go out to the website. It's the best way to see everything, the thought leadership that's been written, understand about our growing and evolving practice and our thoughts and different case studies on how we turn these ideas into reality. Yeah, if you want to reach out to us, uh, again, the website or reach out to either one of us on LinkedIn. Perfect. All right, Patrick, Steve, thank you again for your time. We'll chat again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. And thank you everyone for watching another episode of E2B Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you'd like some more opportune content or you want to catch up on other ways that opportune is intersecting with the energy supply chain, make sure you're heading to our website, like Patrick and Steve said, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com and subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B.